Um, okay, so when we were planning for this class, there was no war happening in Ukraine. And so we went through and kind of were coming up with our different topics. And then here we are four weeks into this conflict. And so we just thought it would be a great opportunity for us to think about forgiveness in the context of a real current atrocity. I mean, the, the book that we referenced in the beginning is Forgiveness and Power in the Age of Atrocity. And so this is an atrocity. Um, we also started the class the first week or two talking about the work in South Africa coming out of apartheid and kind of the amazing work of forgiveness and reconciliation that uh, Mandela and Desmond Tutu kind of laid the groundwork for and ushered in, um, which was, it's really amazing to read about it, but that's something that sort of feels like it happened in the past. And so this is one of those things where we're in the middle of it. We don't know how it's gonna end. So I thought it would be helpful for us to kind of think about um, what we've talked about so far in terms of forgiveness and how that might apply to our thinking about what's going on in Ukraine. Okay, so these are, you know, just some of the, everyone's seen these, I'm sure, but, you know, it's this, this invasion is four and a half weeks old and this picture was one of the early ones a family trying to escape that was killed um, just with their suitcase I mean just awful um, this was a picture from the bombing of the maternity and children's hospital in Mariupol and here is a family that um, also in Mariupol whose the father has been had been killed she did, yes. I was just reading that she, the woman on the stretcher, ended up dying along with her baby. This is a picture of Mary Bull before the war. And actually, I'll show a picture. This is that theater where, um, I think that's a theater, where people were sheltering when it was hit. And then here is a picture of, you know, current situation there. Oh, wow. This is, the, this is that picture of the theater from above where they had written children um, in Russian, I guess that's children in Russian, to try to convince the Russians not to bomb it. And then here you see it to be direct hit. And I think they're still trying to figure out how many people who were sheltering in the bomb shelter underneath the theater, how many survived. I, and I don't know if they've figured that out or not yet. Just awful. Like I, but aside from the obvious, just human trauma, death, just awful human side of things, I've also just been struck by the physical destruction and just thinking, however this ends, how are they going to come back and rebuild? I mean, just you can just imagine your entire city just in ruins. Um, so. I'm just curious, you know, as this has played out over the past four, four and a half weeks, what have been your thoughts and emotions when you're seeing the pictures, reading the news, first of all about the invasion? Were people expecting it? Like, what were, what were your thoughts on that? Um, I just want to get as long as we go. Everybody else wants to, but I'm always the first one. So, so okay, so... Two things. Number one, why now? Right? Why now? 
and I read a couple things, and there are some reasons why now. We can talk about that if you want to. But the big thing is, you know, this is like us ganging up on Louisiana, right? The United States versus a smallish part of, of our country. They're, even though they're a little different, they have some different ways, they have a different accent than the rest of us, they're still one of us, and there is no reason why they should be able to resist the power of the rest of us combined. But Ukraine has. They've been very resilient. They've been defiant, even. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I thought it would be kind of a one week and it's done, it's mm-hmm. gone. So I give them a lot of credit for, you know, resisting and, mm-hmm. and sticking to their guns, literally, in this case. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I think Ukrainians are, are, are um, to be admired for their pluck and their and their ability to withstand the pressure of Russia mm-hmm. invading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced that um, Ukraine is his only um, piece of land that he wants back. Mm-hmm. I think he wanted to test the waters with a country that he might, he thought would be an easy take, mm-hmm. and see how the world reacts. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he may have other plans in his head down. I think he wants the old Russia back, ultimately. That's what he would like, mm-hmm. whether he would get it or not. Um, I think it's just enough of a narcissist to try to test the world yeah. to see. And he has you know, said the greatest what, catastrophe of the 20th century was the breakup of the Soviet Union. So, I know. I have felt a lot of anger towards Putin. You know what that. I feel like a lot of times when we're talking about war or conflict, I don't know if I've ever kind of directed it for myself at one person so much. I mean, clearly he's not the only person making this war happen. But and I think the I think the maybe it's intentional, but the the U.S. the media. But you know, there's been so much focus on calling it Putin's war and and that sort of thing. It's a different world than World War II, mm-hmm. which he, you know, with social media and internet, I don't think he even thought it out about the interplay of how that might mm-hmm. react, you know, the other countries might react to this, because now we can get an instant picture of something that you couldn't in World War II. All right. So, um, I still think he thinks in the past. Mm-hmm. But I don't think And maybe we were the ones that were naive enough to think, there will never be another war like that. It's 2022. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
Well, and, and, to, and to tag on to that, you know, five years ago, six years ago, whenever, he did take the Crimea Peninsula, which was his sedate plan, right? Mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just he waited five years to do what the Germans did in five months. Mm -hmm. For me, it's that I have two Ukrainian students. Mm, yeah. And for one in particular, you know, she is still a Ukrainian citizen, and her entire family is there, mm. and she's here, and trying to play a sport, and focus, and trying to do classes, and having the difficulty of that. My other one, her immediate family is here, but then all her extended family is in Ukraine, and the inability to get in contact mm -hmm. and her feeling isolated here. Mm -hmm. Luckily, it feels like her team has rallied around her to help her on that mm -hmm. piece, but just the thought of that. And then thinking back about the, the World War II, we were in Chicago <coughs> a couple of years ago at their Art Institute, and they had a collection of the propaganda art that was done during the Cold War, after World War II, and during the Cold War. And it was some of the darkest, most mm -hmm. emotionally draining art to have to go through. Mm -hmm. but they demonized the West, and that that was all that the people of Russia see. Mm -hmm. And it sounds again that that's all that they see, but the artist, the drawings were absolutely horrific hmm. and you just kind of walked through and when you left you were stunned but then it started dawning like okay this is why mm -hmm. they're pressed to do what they do is because mm -hmm. this is all they know this is all they mm -hmm. see and it's really difficult you know for those that are trying to speak out i know like people like um um Ovechkin, who's a friend of putin and he has death threats against him with the Washington Capitals mm -hmm. hockey team. Uh, you've got somebody like uh, Artemi Panarin for the Rangers who did speak out and mm -hmm. he's got extra security because of fear that they may be reprisals against him. So we've got people in the states mm -hmm. that walk around in constant fear from either side that mm -hmm. they're going to be attacked because of what's taking place in Ukraine. Mm. It's kind of, yeah, it's crazy to also think about mm -hmm. is like <coughs> I didn't realize you know when I was younger growing up I grew up in when this world had a USSR mm -hmm. you know and to understand what the USSR is is like Rome all the little cities and, and I said well all those little places I won't say it that way the Ukraine Romania everything stretching up to half of Germany was the USSR. You know, this is what Putin grew up in and there was a KGB agent in and, and they believed in this iron fist. And when I did missionary work over in R Romania, I would hear, I would talk to people, they would tell me about what it was like to live under that. Mm -hmm. It was awful. You know, especially for places that had a lot of resources like the Ukraine, mm -hmm. all they did was steal it from those areas and ship it into Moscow and took it away from the people, starved people out. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't even realize it until this war broke out that when I was a kid, I remember hearing about the Chernobyl meltdown. Mm -hmm. All I knew is that was Russia. Mm -hmm. Now I found out today, don't, that's in Ukraine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
that, that, that plant is in Ukraine. I, back then, we never knew that because that was Russia to us. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't realize how many different connections uh, the people from the Ukraine have amongst the world. Um, watch for like over a decade while the uh, Klitschko brothers dominated the heavy late class. And now to see Vitaly, the mayor of Kiev, out there ready to fight for his homeland and his mm-hmm. brother Vladimir. And the interesting part about that is Hayden Panettiere, her daughter lives in the Ukraine with her father, Vladimir, mm-hmm. which she had to get her back to the U.S. so she could be safe. So it's mm-hmm. all kind of different connections that we have with them. Mm-hmm. You know, we have professional sports athletes from here that play over there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had a friend's daughter who just got back just in time before bombs started falling, you know. Then you see people like Brittany Griner, mm-hmm. who's stuck in a jail over there now. Yeah. You know, she's been coming in and out of that country with CBD oil for I don't know how many years. It's just all of a sudden now going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, these different atrocities and things we're seeing now is crazy. Not only on the Ukrainian side, but think about the Russian citizens who aren't for this, who are speaking out and being killed or arrested. And even right now, as we sit here in the warmth of this room, there are Russian people who try to get out of Russia who are sitting at our southern border and can't get into the country. Mm-hmm. They're stuck right there. You know, they, America will not let them in. They flew into South America thinking they could come up that route to get into America for asylum. But right now, we're not letting Russians into our country. What did you guys think about the sanctions? Yeah. With the sanctions, I think what I keep wishing, or just this is on a, an emotional side, I wish that peaceful measures felt more powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate the idea of war. I, I'm terrified of the idea of World War Three. but the sanctions just feel weak to mm-hmm. me. And I wish they would have more in, in, impact. And I just kind of have felt myself wishing that peace felt more powerful than it does. Mm-hmm. The problem with that mm-hmm. is that number one, how do you, number one, you have the problem of do these crazy people even have the feeling of it? And how do you effectively target the sanctions to attack the people that deserve to be mm-hmm. attacked by them? And, you know, not target people, I mean, Supposedly, they say that they're only targeting, like, the oligarchs, Putin mm-hmm. and his cronies and such, but it's, how do you know what it's affecting? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it's it's always felt like, as she was saying, that sanctions, like all the sanctions against North Korea with all their <laughs> yeah. craziness over the years, mm-hmm. is like, it feels like it does nothing. So it's like, <clears throat> sometimes I think it's, these dictators, they only respect military power. And unfortunately, we can, there's certain points that we just can't cross, especially with a nuclear armed nation, because that just opens up the nuclear genie, and after that goes hot. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just insane. Yep. I, I felt like when, the, when we were first imposing the sanctions, you know, it felt like revenge you know I was like this is good they're getting what they deserve you know the Russians must feel so embarrassed about all this and the longer this has gone on I'm like well now I'm kind of feeling sorry for the Russian people who not necessarily as much for the people that went to the giant stadium rally for Putin last week or whenever that was and but for the other Russians 
um, you know, I've just felt that's what an awkward, strange feeling that must be to be sitting there not agreeing necessarily with your what the leaders of your country are doing, but not being in a situation where you can speak out without fear of reprisals. And then, like you said, there have been so many. I was just reading the other day about the thousands and thousands of Russians that have left and gone to Moldova. I mean, all these other little, you know, countries bordering Russia just trying to get out and start trying to start over. And, um, and you know, people aren't necessarily feeling as um, charitable to help Russians start over <laughs> as they are to help Ukrainians starting over, which, you know, is understandable. But, um, yeah, and I'm, I, you know, I've... I've kind of gone back and forth, too. I, I like that we tried to start with this diplomatic response, but I've definitely had moments where I'm like, can we just do the no-fly zone, get in there and just take out some of these Russian artillery, you know, installations that are just destroying um, the Ukrainian cities, but, but I also don't want to see a nuclear war. And, you know, it's just, I feel like I've gone back and forth with my emotions on what... Uh, I think should happen or what I wish would happen and and uh, and then I also think well did we did the West think that you know Putin clearly thought it was going to be a quick and Ukraine was going to fold they're going to have it did we also think that our united front of the West and the sanctions were going to be enough to stop this quickly like clearly we're now over a month into this and that hasn't happened so it looks like he's slowly grinding it because, number one, his, he's not as strong as he thought he was. Mm -hmm. Number two, the loyalty of all those soldiers aren't where it needs to be because you're getting different stories. I think mm -hmm. one went out yesterday where a unit of soldiers ran over their own colonel oh, with a tank because uh, yeah. they were tired. They were like, no, we're not doing this. And they either turned and killed this guy who was trying to make them to kill these people. Now, some of the soldiers even thought, hold on, we were doing an exercise. What do you mean we're killing Ukrainians? You know, that's not what, because ultimately, you got to think, y'all. Remember what I said. The USSR used to be all of that. So don't think for a second they aren't looking at relatives. Mm -hmm. You know, they're looking at relatives. And then you got people like Ruslan, who's in Belarus, who is a Russian citizen trying to help Ukrainians mm -hmm. right now. One of our members of Outer Creek, boot on the ground in Belarus. You know, you were in the sanctuary this morning, you've seen where him and some others have been getting medicine and food and trying to get it to the people who need it. You know, that's a danger for him because by him being a Russian citizen right now, that could be looked at as being a traitor. Mm -hmm. So I want y'all to understand that in the midst of this atrocity, we have family in the middle of this who yeah. get risking their lives mm -hmm. to be Jesus in the middle of a war zone. I, I always, for some reason, my mind always goes back to what kind of narrative am I believing? Because just like, <clears throat> so Russia is pr producing their own narrative. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you follow the narrative, you would think you were fine, but you're not, maybe. But then mm -hmm. I've got some of those narratives, too, about maybe that all the Russians are bad mm -hmm. or that, you know, this nation that's close should be doing something and they're not, so they're horrible people. Like, like I don't want to have those narratives either that are dehumanizing other mm -hmm. groups of people. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm -hmm. 
it's confusing. <laughs> as a, and then I'm like, okay, as a Christian, thinking about forgiveness, <laughs> you know, and that's really when we kind of started talking about this. I'm like, well, what what are we supposed to be thinking about? Um, so, yes. Mm-hmm. You wonder, I mean, who's doing exactly mm-hmm. lives have been lost? Mm-hmm. I'm all for assassination. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of uh, <laughs> well, I know, because as we look back at World War II, we don't, I mean, I, I'm generalizing for the entire Christian community, but... You know, I think we would all agree this is great to intervene militarily to defeat the Nazis. I mean, maybe there are pacifists among us who would say no. But, you know, here we are in the situation. And you, I mean, there are probably many people that would agree with there's, you. There's one of, one of his former, one of Putin's former buddies who got rich just like the rest of them did, taking over stuff that isn't theirs. But he lives in Australia now, and he's... And, of course, his livelihood has been greatly diminished because of the sanctions and because of the war and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. He's, he's put a million dollars on his head, mm-hmm. dead or alive. I mean, and he's, he's a Russian. I mean, when you started... When you started <laughs> yeah. So, so, yes, there are other people who think like you. Yes. Who, who, who have some skin in the game? <laughs> there are people. There are literally people like you saying because. Because think about it. When those sanctions went down, there were several different people out of Russia whose yachts got taken, and those aren't cheap yachts. They're over six hundred million dollar yachts. They could be like many. They're like Carnival Cruise Liners. They got taken. And not only did they get taken, their assets got taken. So now you were a billionaire at 10 o'clock yesterday evening. This morning you broke. Yep. Because this joke decided to go do this. Now your money's been affected. And sanctions work like that such that it puts pressure on others to make a stand, mm-hmm. to take a stand. But, I mean, a lot of times in history, things like this have happened. Like in World War II. Hitler coming to a crossroad. He thought what he was doing was, you know, this ain't working. I might need to quit. And you know what happened? Somebody tried to kill him and failed. And he said, oh, God wants me to keep going. <laughs> my, my parents are Cuban. And so my grandparents were Cuban. I used to listen to the story. Mm-hmm. This is all nearly similar to Cuban. They were only 90 miles away from Cuba. Right. And, he stayed, and we had sanctions against El Castro. And... That didn't work for 50 years. Mm-hmm. So, and it still has <clears throat> There's still driving cars in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And the people there are still oppressed. And the people there that are suffering like people in Russia and are having to go to those rallies. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, my uncle was telling me stories about people being forced to go to those rallies to pretend, not, you know, in Cuba. Right. To pretend that they're all about it. So we yeah. have to be careful on how we're mm-hmm. just saying like it's so so eerily just similar to what what happened ninety miles away. Well and you have to think right, you have to think there are probably many of these Western leaders who are like, Putin, just please be crazy enough to like dip your toe into one NATO country so that we can just <laughs> take you out, you know. 
but that is not mission up. So I, these are some of the things that we, I think I've mentioned these early on, um, pre-Ukrainian invasion, but, you know, the, think about this. The oppressor, Putin, will never willingly give up power. When we love the oppressor, we bring about not only our own salvation, but the salvation of the oppressor. This one's hard for me right now. I'm just not feeling a lot of love towards Putin. Um, but maybe I can just reframe that and say Russia. <laughs> I can just think about it in terms of Russia. Um, and then Mandela and Tutu, you know, they really kind of their vision for post-apartheid South Africa was forgiveness and just restoration instead of, instead of legal and punitive retribution. So it will be interesting to see once this is all over, whatever that looks like, how the West goes about trying to bring, uh, I guess, restoration to Ukraine and that relationship with Russia, what that looks like, if it takes a completely punitive tone or if it takes more of a restorative tone. Yes? That second part is so important because part of the reason you got World War II was mm -hmm. because of what we did in World War One. Yeah. yeah, good point. Punitive retribution mm -hmm. yep. to those powers. So we do need to be very careful, however this conflict is, mm -hmm. how we treat Putin and Russia right. on that side. Because when you go that route, you're just setting up a generation of bitterness, anger, resentment. It does not solve the problem. Right. It's, you know, we're in the business right now of trying to isolate them, but you don't want that to be the, the forever uh, goal because then you have North Korea, which is not going so great either. Um, and then here is, you know, another, this, I think I shared this one earlier too, from Martin Luther King Jr. A challenge that stands before us is that of entering the new age with understanding goodwill. Virtues of love, goodness, and forgiveness should stand at the center of our lives. <clears throat> Skipping ahead. If we enter the new age with hate and bitterness, basically we're going to have a repeat of the old age. So we as Christians, as we think about this, um, you know, maybe we can focus our thoughts and energies on forgiveness, love, goodness, goodwill, um, and less on where I very easily go, which is revenge or, you know, hope someone, you know, hope he's suffering. Or, and then, of course, we go to what the Bible says, and it really holds us accountable again. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Um, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we uh, are being called to pray for Putin and all of those working uh, against Ukraine right now. Um, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he's given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we have to remember every single person on this earth is the child of God and there is the, what holds us back the anger you know thinking Putin doesn't deserve forgiveness or my love or they haven't admitted that he's done anything wrong but we're, again we're commanded to do this 
I am so very curious right now, and I hadn't heard anything about this, but I'm very curious on the position the Russian Orthodox Church has taken and the position the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is taken in the midst of this conflict and how they're looking at scripture through this. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Does anyone know? Well, the, 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 the Russian Orthodox, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church has said that Putin is correct. Yeah, yeah. right. Because yeah. he has to, yeah. Oh, he, he has to, yeah. He will, he will Church die. or state run in Russia. Yeah. Yeah, so, right. so he has What's taken he the say? other view. I don't know if any of you remember from 1982, but Sting and the Police wrote a song, I Hope the Russians Love Their Children Too. You heard it playing lately? It's been playing a lot. It's been playing a lot, but it came out in 1982. It says, in Europe and America, there is a growing feeling of hysteria, conditioned to the response to all the threats in the rhetorical speeches of the Soviets, Mr. Khrushchev, we will bury you. I do not subscribe to this point of view. I'd, it uh, be such an ignorant thing to do if the Russians love their children too. Hope, how can I save my little boy from Oppenheimer's deadly toy? <laughs> there is no monopoly of common sense on either side of the political fence. We share the same biology regardless of ideology. Believe me when I say to you, I hope the Russians love their children too. There is no historical precedent to put in the words in the mouth of our president. Sorry, president. There is no such thing as a winnable war it is a lie we don't believe anymore. Mr. Reagan says, we will protect you. I don't subscribe to his point of view. Believe me when I say to you, I hope the Russians love their children too. We share the same biology, regardless of ideology. But what might save us, and me and you, is if the Russians love their children too. Yeah. I'm not mistaken, I remember I don't remember, I remember hearing about it from my dad and others who were alive at the time. But after the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis, the conversation between Kennedy and Khrushchev, when they were, it was, the world was teetering on nuclear holocaust theme. And it was only stopped for a minute because some people on both sides had to come to a realization of that because mm -hmm. I think it was so, if you push the button, your planes won't have a place to land. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I mean, and we're thinking about that was what in the 60s, 70s, 60s, 60s, yeah. And the, a lot of people, I want y'all to understand the reason we're only doing so much, and other countries are only doing so much, is you don't want to push this man to a point where he decides he's going to push that button, because that button is not just one missile; it's thousands. That button would change your way of life as you know it, or if you have it after that button is pushed. Mm -hmm. Not only the life's here, but across this planet, across the sphere. Because if they push the button and we push the button, we're not the only ones with those capabilities. India has them, other countries, China has it, other people have it. And if we push it and they push it, it's gonna affect everybody else too. They're gonna start pushing. <coughs> it won't be anything left. The bombs that we have now are 60 times more powerful than what you see in, a, in the video of what happened in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that. I've made a close friend at Gonzaga, uh, Irakawa 
Akihiro, Akihiro. Hirokawa. Akihiro's grandfather fought in World War II in the Pacific. My dad fought in World War II in the Pacific. Mm. He was dad was on some of the island hopping. My dad was part of the island hopping. And uh, matter of fact, his gun got so hot on the shelling at at um, um, Imajima. Imajima that they had to stop to cool the gun back down because they had shelled so many mm. times. And it was funny because we're both born in the same year. Uh, both of our first sons were born in 2000. Uh, he laughs, he gave me a calendar because we're both dragons. We're born in 64, so we're both with the year of the dragon. And his son's a dragon and my son's a dragon. So it was kind of thing, but we started talking about, you know, what was it like? Because they did not live too far from those growing up and, and the devastation. And you look now, and there's a beautiful tea garden there, and all of these things, the life and everything that's come back. And having those conversations that, you know, his relative and my relative were trying to kill each other, yet we can see the commonality that we have and how that we need to overcome so that something like that never happened again. But it's been interesting to go and walk through that and, and, and to hear someone who was in Japan and grew up mm -hmm. in Japan after that and the change that has taken place, even though, you know, the emperor just passed recently mm -hmm. that was, you know, was the emperor in 1942. So it's interesting to see, you know, Pearl Harbor, what happened in Japan, and that we can get together yeah. if we're willing to do, to forgive. Mm-hmm, yep. Anyway, should we go back to that quote? Oh, yes, all right, let's see if I can do it. <coughs> yes. Start a little bit, so our brother, we all kind of defaulted to the Russians, Putin, you know, we're supposed to be accommodating of him, forgiving him, et cetera. But obviously our brothers and sisters are also you know, Ukrainian. And then you look at the scenario, all right, well, one of these two are getting bullied, one of them's not. So in our love for our brothers and sisters, I mean, what, what response is that? Is that res mm -hmm. Does that compel a different response? Um, since we have brothers on both sides, one of which is getting, one of whom is getting bullied. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just, because we immediately went to the oppressor, because mm -hmm. some of the other terminology, but we also have another brother. In the love your enemies scripture is easier <laughs> to mm -hmm. interpret that, because it's clear who the enemy is in this particular situation, but you're right. I mean, how do you love both? And what's the response? And in different ways, and... You know, what's your prayer for both in different in different ways? Um, so if y'all were in first service, then you, we had a great segue into this class because Dinox talked about, during the offering, talked about Ruslan and his work with Hisdom. Um, but for those of you that aren't familiar with Hisdom, it's one of the ministries that Otter Creek supports. Um, both financially, but also lots of Otter Creek members are on the board of HISDOM and work closely with Ruslan. Ruslan is a member at Otter Creek. Um, you've probably seen him here when he's been in town, but, you know, it's an organization in Belarus that was created really to mobilize local churches and Christians to um, 
disciple orphans through fostering and adoption. So it's a wonderful ministry. And all of a sudden they are not only doing their core ministry work, but they're also trying to do what they can to aid um, the Ukrainians. And if, if you were in first service, you saw the video, and if not, you have that to look forward to. But I reached out to Ruslan just and told him we were having this class and just asked if he wanted me to share anything about their work amidst the Ukrainian crisis. And his email, I'm going to read the email he sent to me. It's just, you know, it's just tender. And it's, it's a perfect example of how complicated this situa- situation is. So he said, Rachel, I am a member, a member at Otter Creek too. When I travel to the U.S., Otter Creek is my home church. I don't mind sharing my thought about forgiveness during this war in Ukraine war in Ukraine. English is not my native language, so be free to ask me questions and correct me. I also want to share this text with da- with David Knox, who is my friend and his dumb chairman. Thank you for a great opportunity to share my thoughts with you. I was born in Siberia in the USSR. My great-grandfather moved to Siberia as a young boy with his father and brothers from Ukraine in the beginning of the 1900s when Ukraine was a part of Russia. When Americans think about Siberia, they imagine snow and wild, frozen, and endless spaces. It is true as much as when Russians think about the U.S., Midwest, or West, and they imagine Native Americans and cowboys all around. (laughs) My great-grandfather and his family were farmers, and like most immigrants in America who looked for a better life in the U.S. West, my relatives looked for free land and better farming life out of Ukraine and Siberia. I never met my great-grandfather because he was killed during World War II near Leningrad, St. Petersburg, years before I was born. I'm older now than when he was killed. Anyway, my grandmother was raised in Ukrainian culture. She was the one who always sang Ukrainian songs and spoke Ukrainian to me when I was a toddler. Every time I hear Ukrainian country songs, it is always an amazing flashback to my childhood. When I was 16 years old, the USSR collapsed because the USA and West won in the Cold War. The ungodly communist system disappeared, but this collapse caused a huge mess in the economy and social life of millions of people in the former USSR. Only God knows how many people were killed in nationalistic, religious, and civil conflicts in now countries like Moldova, Georgia, Russia, Lithuania, Central Asia, etc. Only God knows how many became orphans and refugees. Only God knows how many just died because of starvation or luck, uh, or lack of simple medical help. When I was 17, I met Americans. They came from Smyrna, Tennessee. As a good student, I knew that Americans were enemies or spies at least. This is what Soviet ideology told us in the USSR. Anyway, I was curious to know who these people were. I expected them to tell me how proud they are that the USA took over the USSR in the Cold War. Well, I was surprised that instead of poking into every Russian in Siberia with their pride about their victory, my new American friends came to share about Jesus with me. They told me that if I follow Christ, my life will be changed forever, and it doesn't matter what nationality or country I belong to. Uh, Let's see. Imagine, during that moment, I thought about how my country was destroyed without a real war. My mom lost her job. My sister and I had almost no food to eat and clothes uh, and clothes to wear, but these Americans wanted me to believe that Jesus will change it. 
It took me two long years before I followed the call and accepted Jesus as my Savior. And guess what? These American missionaries were right. Jesus and his church changed my life. I live in Belarus now. Unfortunately, Belarus is a side of this war in Ukraine. You may read from Hisdom News that a huge territory of northeast, northeastern Ukraine is blocked by Russian military. People surrounded in big cities and supply chains for food, medicine, etc. are not existing anymore. Most of the population, including Christians, are starving and needing help, especially in the countryside. Instead of criticizing, condemning, and complaining about Russia, Ukraine, sanctions, and Putin, my Lord wants my ministry, my family, and me to serve those Ukrainians in northeastern Ukraine who now most need help. I know God loves Ukrainians. Jesus wants me to share his light with those who are angry, who have lost their relatives and homes, those who starve for food or need medicine. Jesus is the master of forgiveness. I believe in his great will to give forgiveness to Ukrainians and Russians. I'm his simple tool to serve his people despite my nationality, place of birth, or citizenship. I know, I feel like I should just end it right there. But, I mean, that's, those are words from someone literally in the middle of it right now. A fellow Otter Creeker. Um, and I just, I mean, I hope those kind of stay with you guys this week as you think, as you're reading more news and um, thinking about it and just like, okay, think about Ruslan's perspective, such a complicated perspective he has, and he's just focusing on loving and forgiveness and doing what he can. So I have a question. Yeah. I don't think there's been an official adjustment. I know anyone can go, actually, you can go on the Otter Creek website and get to Hisdom's website and donate directly to Hisdom. Yeah, and the, 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 the Hisdom website directs you to give it to David Knox. Yeah. Well, and if you, you know, sending a check, it comes to here, like this yeah. building. So, so just, just um, give it to David. Yes. So that is a wonderful thing that any of us could do to literally, like, immediately aid um, their That's work. what I read on those two sides because I've been following it. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like that, at least until the last time I read it, there's still able to access funds. So all of the issues mm -hmm. around navigating currency exchanges and things of that nature, but everything mm -hmm. I read said that they would still get them. But who knows how long that lasts? Right. Yeah. The, the, other, the other little aspect there that's important is that Belarus, um, you know, the, their economy is really not a strong one. And their, their average, you know, per capita GDP, it's like a third of ours. Like, it's like literally that much less. Even though they're a European country and they've got infrastructure, it's going to pot and they can't pay to fix it, right? So they, they make do with a lot less than we do mm -hmm. anyway. So, I mean, we, we even, in, even when times are good, they need our help. That's mm -hmm. my point. Yeah. And now times are not so good, so they need our help even more. Yeah. There's, and if anyone needs to leave, and it's 1045, y'all can head on out, but um, there's another kind of real world scenario I want to share with y'all. Uh, I don't know if have, who has heard of Corey Ten Boom and, or who's read The Hiding Place, 
She was a Dutch watchmaker and living in the Netherlands in World War II. She and her family were very strong Christians, um, hid Jews, worked, worked with the resistance. Um, they were arrested. She spent four months in solitary confinement before she and her sister were sent to one concentration camp, and then they ended up at Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. Um, just horrific. But the entire time, they used every opportunity there. Amidst just horrible personal suffering, they used that time to share about Jesus and the gospel, praying for not only their fellow prisoners, but for their captors. And then after the war, she spent time creating these rehabilitation facilities, first for people who had been victims of the war, but then also for um, Dutch Dutch citizens who worked with the Nazis against fellow citizens. And that's how they were, she and her family were portrayed by a fellow Dutch person. And then also did a lot of work in Germany helping Germans recover from the war. Um, and I'm just going to read, I'll probably just do one since we're out of time, but let's see here. Um, let's see which one I'll do. Okay, so this is a good example. Well, and, you know, this woman's amazing and in all of her work. And even, so I'll read this last one. This is when she's in Germany speaking. So she said, I continued to speak partly because the home in Blomendal ran on contributions, partly because the hunger for this, her sister's story seemed to increase with time. I traveled all over Holland to other parts of the Europe and the United States. But the place where the hunger was greatest was Germany. Germany was a land in ruins, cities of ashes and rubble, but more terrifying still, mines and hearts of ashes. Just across the border was to feel the great weight that hung over that land. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center in Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am from your for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that, as you say, Jesus has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Bloomingdale the need to forgive, I kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, and I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. So, you know, just even after years of what she'd been through and preaching forgiveness and reconciliation, it was still hard for her. And I think as we think about Ukraine or anything else, um, I just thought that was a great thing to remember. It's like if we can't bring ourselves to forgive someone or to 
you know, generate that kind of love in our hearts, we can ask God to put that forgiveness in our hearts and put that love in our hearts. So food for thought this week as you continue to read about atrocities everywhere. Um, It's depressing.